What is civil asset forfeiture? Well, it's where the cops steal your money and then never give it back, or maybe they offer you half. Uh, it's incredibly outrageous, and you, if you don't know anything about it and have never heard of it, Jill Jacobson, my guest today, does a great job of explaining it and discussing why it may be coming to an end. There's been a favorable ruling for one person, and we'll talk about the future of civil asset forfeiture and hopefully its death right after these messages. Before we begin, I just want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting this show. That's really how we support the network. It's also how I support my kids. So you're not only getting the benefit of paying for all the infrastructure of multiple different shows in the network, you're also making my children happy. And isn't that the best thing in the world to make children happy? So uh, especially the people who do that the most are our $100 a month members that is Jason Doolittle, Christy Avery, who makes my kids especially happy with all of her gifts. She's so sweet. Reinhold, Matthew Durbin, and Vincent Pykel. And everybody that subscribes to the Patreon, it, it is value for value. So if you find value in what I do, then please give value back to the network, to the Chris Spangle Show, and to me for the time and effort that I put into educating you and helping you think differently. Uh, you also get several different goodies. You'll get early release of episodes uh, weeks in advance, sometimes months in advance. You will also get ad-free versions of the show. You will also get a back catalog going back to 2012. Uh, I think it actually goes back to 2008 to some of my very early radio shows. So there is, an, there is uh, I think, like 1,500 different episodes in there. So it's a huge library of content. You can learn about past current events, you can learn about different philosophies, and you can just have some fun listening to it. We really thank you so much for supporting The Chris Spangle Show. It means a lot to us. Uh, it means a lot to my family, especially, and it means a lot to everyone here at the network. So if you would, please go to wearelibertarians.com, find the link there. You can also go to patreon.com slash wearelibertarians, or you can find it in the show notes and become a patron today. Jill Jacobson, thanks for joining me here on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. So, you have written a great article in Newsweek. I told you before we started talking, I think it is the clearest, most concise definition of civil asset forfeiture I've ever read, which has been a lot. Um, yeah. You know, In the before times, before Trump, libertarians, this was like their big main issue. I don't know if you are a libertarian and have been, but a very good article called Theft by Another Name. It's time to fight back against civil forfeiture. Uh, it'll be in the show notes. Um, let's start. Let's just get to know you real quick. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're a law student. How did you become interested in writing and civil asset forfeiture and, and the law in general? Definitely. So I am a third year law student at BC Law and a contributor for Young Voices. My first brush with law enforcement and civil forfeiture in general was when I was in college working at the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Organized Crime Unit. And I got sort of some practical exposure to civil forfeiture. And then when I went to law school and sort of learned about the legal underpinnings of civil liberties, it went from sort of cognitive dissonance to enrage. And I started learning more and more about it and was compelled to write about it when I heard of Starling's case. So do you have uh, an idea of where your career path will head after law school, Supreme Court, anything like that? What are you thinking? So I'll be clerking down on the Southern District of Florida, and then uh, I'm not sure what will follow. 
Wait, is that the Trump district? It is indeed. Oh, that's that'll be great. So do you know if you'll be there in time for, for some of the shenanigans? I'm not sure, um, but it's an interesting culture and historical moment. We will see if I'm down there for any of it. Well, we certainly uh, hope so, I think. I don't know. I think that'd be really cool to, to see and be a part of. Uh, so tell me about Crystal Starling. Tell me her story. Let's start at the beginning. Definitely. So Crystal Starling is a resident of Rochester, New York, and her she was saving up to turn her hot dog stand into a full-fledged food truck. She had saved up $8,000 to buy this food truck when her apartment was searched by federal DEA agents because her boyfriend was under investigation for drug crimes. And when they searched her home, they seized all $8,000 of cash under civil forfeiture. And those are the facts that gave rise to her case. So once Starling's money was seized, she went to the government and tried to initiate a proceeding to get it back. It's important to note that civil forfeiture are acts between the, the property itself and the government. It sort of creates strange case names like Red Toyota Camry versus United States, which means that victims of civil asset forfeiture don't have the right to an attorney like the criminally accused do under our Bill of Rights and Due Process. So she had to go it on her own unless she wanted to pay for an attorney. So can I ask, do you know the history of why they choose to sue the property? You, you, that makes no sense to me because property isn't people. Certainly. It's very strange, but civil forfeiture has been around since the founding of our country. It actually is a remnant of maritime law where they had a very hard time getting jurisdiction over pirates, but they needed to seize the ships that they had stolen. So civil asset forfeiture is a judicially created convention to get around that problem. We've strayed very far from its origins, but that's how it began. Okay, so she has a food truck. Uh, they take $8,000 of her money. Um, she then has to wait for her boyfriend's trial to be over before she can sue, misses some deadlines. Can you explain the complexity of that particular piece? Definitely. So even for victims with attorneys, this process is Byzantine. It is very complex and it takes a lot of time and resources. But Crystal Starling got pretty far until she was misled by a state prosecutor. So she writes to the Department of Justice to initiate these proceedings. And they tell her that she has to wait for her boyfriend's case to conclude before she can protest her forfeiture. And she waits and he was acquitted and she writes again and they tell her that she's mistaken and that she's already missed the filing deadline. She's now late on filing and her property is permanently forfeited to the state. She relied on mistaken advice. Um, so the clock was running out while unbeknownst to her, she was just waiting for her boyfriend's case to conclude. So the Institute for Justice, which is a nonprofit law firm, stepped in on her behalf and actually appealed this on the argument that victims of civil asset forfeiture shouldn't be penalized for good faith procedural mistakes. This is a really complex process. There was no bad faith on her part. Um, and legal deadlines are to keep attorneys in line, to keep them as zealous advocates for their clients, not for pro se victims sort of attempting to navigate a very difficult process. 
And the Second Circuit agreed and said that she'll, her and other victims will be held to what's called the good cause standard. So if they are proceeding in good faith, there's no malicious intent behind their mistake that it will be forgiven. And despite her late filing, she can continue to fight for her property. Okay, let's derail a little bit and talk about that that ruling because I've never heard that before. Uh, obviously, I'm not a lawyer. Um, but what is the point of deadlines? Why do... do I imagine, no offense, it's because of lawyer trickery and procedural. <laughs> uh, like, why why are deadlines meant to kind of keep lawyers engaged in the case? Certainly. So this is sort of policy arguments as to why we have such stringent deadlines in the legal profession and with courts. One might be that courts are very, very busy and they have to keep things moving. And there are a lot of parties involved, the judge, opposing counsel, the government, and deadlines are important for the functioning of our judiciary. Um, And they also hold attorneys' feet to the fire to make sure that they are doing best by their clients. They're not really uh, constructed in mind for pro se litigants, right, who are attempting to navigate this process that they don't really know much about at all. So she's one of a very small amount of people that actually have tried to take on this case. Why don't people actually try to go after their property? What are some of the problems with trying to get your money back, even if you've been proven innocent? Yeah, so 80% of forfeiture actually goes uncontested. And there are a lot of reasons for this. One, probably the biggest one, is that law enforcement is not always seizing pirate ships and homes and hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? Most forfeiture is small. It's $1,000 or a phone or, you know, at times someone's car. And oftentimes they can't reconcile the price of hiring a lawyer. So they just forfeit the property instead. Oftentimes people are they feel hesitant to go up against law enforcement. Going into court on your own volition and standing up to law enforcement in front of a judge is not a task that many people feel qualified to do. They're intimidated not to do. Uh, The research shows that most civil forfeiture happens to people who are low income, who have already had run-ins with law enforcement or have had family members that have run in with law enforcement, and they're very hesitant to stand up to the government. So this happens across the country, and it seems to be a pretty big business for supporting police agencies. Who is the beneficiary of civil asset forfeiture, and what's the scope across the nation with this? Yeah, I think you touch on probably one of the most controversial parts of civil asset forfeiture, which is the financial incentives that underpin it. So oftentimes the proceeds from federal civil asset forfeiture go right back into funding the federal agencies that seize the property. And in many states, it's similar. So they'll seize property, auction it off, and those proceeds will go to anything from new law enforcement equipment to the direct salaries of the law enforcement itself. I mean, there are some fringe cases where local law enforcement has used it to buy a Zamboni in the state of Massachusetts or a clown. Um, It gets pretty, pretty ridiculous. So, I mean, you write since 2000, the government has seized more than $68.8 billion 
through civil asset forfeiture. And in New York, law enforcement generated $19.7 billion in revenue between 2000 and 2018. It, I mean, I was no math wizard, but if it's $68 billion across America and $20 billion in New York, is it just much worse there? Because it's it represents a pretty large share? Yeah, that's a good question. It could be explained by the size of the population. New York has a very large metropolitan area that makes civil forfeiture much easier. Um, it could be that their policies are friendlier towards civil forfeiture. We're seeing a lot of state reform across the U.S. New York is a notable exception. So there are lots of reasons why, but they definitely make up a large percentage of national forfeiture. So if uh, I get pulled over, can any law enforcement agency do it or is it dependent on state laws? So there are two systems of civil forfeiture that sort of work in tandem. There's the federal forfeiture system, and then there are various state laws that state and local law enforcement can, can forfeit under. One of the interesting sort of quirks of the system is that there's a program called equitable sharing, where a lot of state governments as of late have passed legislation that prohibits law enforcement from pocketing the funds that they seize. So they prohibit the funds from going directly back into the budget. But there's a federal program called the Equitable Sharing Program where local and state law enforcement seize property under federal law, hand over the property to the feds, and then they get to receive a portion of it. They get a cut. So on paper, it looks as though um, state and local law enforcement don't profit off their policing, but in practice, it can look very different if they participate in federal equitable sharing programs. So you write at one point, Crystal Sterling has offered half of her life savings back and that that's pretty common. Can you talk about that part of the story and why that's common? That seems awfully unfair. If you're willing to give me the money back, give me all of my money back. Don't just keep half. Yeah, definitely. It, it speaks to the frivolousness of the actions, right? Where they say, well, we're not going to give you it all back, but we'll go halvesies with you if you don't want to meet us in court. That is very common. And it's it's pretty shocking. And it happened in Starling's case and, and many other victims as well. Yeah, because anybody can go down and to file a lawsuit. I mean, you know, rich people deal with this a lot. You go down and file a $75 lawsuit against a rich person. Well, all of a sudden, they've got to defend it and hire a bunch of lawyers. And, I mean, for her to go back and fight for her $4,000, $8,000 with a 50-50 chance she's going to get it back, it's like, I'm going to spend twenty grand on lawyers? It just doesn't make any sense. So, uh, th- that is re- – I, I mean, I would probably go, yeah, I just don't have the extra cash to go fight for this. So, that's where the Institute for Justice stepped in. Can you talk a little bit more about the Institution for Justice? It's a great organization I've followed for a long time, but they really kind of fight for, you know, injustices. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, have you followed it? Do you know much about it? Yeah. So I originally got involved with the Institute for Justice as a first year law student, and they raised my awareness of you know, a lot of issues that are frankly understudied and under discussed in law schools. Civil forfeiture is rarely discussed in law school curriculum. It takes libertarian institutions like the Institute for Justice. There are others like the Goldwater Institute and Pacific Legal Foundation 
to raise awareness about civil forfeiture. And, and they definitely do a lot of great work for people who otherwise could not afford these lengthy appeals. I mean, taking a case to the Second Circuit requires resources. It requires a lot of time that the average victim of civil forfeiture cannot take weeks, months, at times years off their jobs to pursue these legal claims. Um, and that's why institutions like the Institute for Justice are so important. What are some other issues that they really focus on? I know eminent domain has kind of been in their purview um, going back to the, what was the New Hampshire town that was kind of a, a big Kilo. Kilo. Yeah. Um, what are some other issues that they're focused on that maybe you're aware of that I'm not? Yeah. One of their big fights that I find very interesting is occupational licensing. So they advocate against unnecessary frivolous occupational licensing regimes that prevent people from at times working jobs that they have for a very long time up until recent unnecessary regulation. Okay. So explain the, look, of course I know what it means to like go to the second circuit and like get this ruling uh, of course, but I mean, everybody else doesn't. Right. So explain it to me. Like, I don't really know. Certainly. So they're in our federal court system, right? There are trial courts and then there are courts of appeals and then there's the Supreme court. So trial courts are your court of first instance. This is where jury trials happen. This is where Starling began. And they mainly deal with issues of fact. Once you have a verdict there, you can appeal it to the courts of appeals. The Second Circuit is one such court. They mostly resolve questions of law. So in this case, the question of law was what standard should Starling be held to given this procedural violation? And the Second Circuit answered the good cause standard. Now, if that were to be further appealed, uh, it would go to the Supreme Court. I don't know. I, I think like everybody else, I can look at it and go, all right, why do we have to have like a standard? Like it just seems wrong that she gets to have her stuff taken by the government. Why did she why do we have to come like causes and all this stuff, I guess that's the part that I, I come down and I go, well, where's the justice? You know, can you explain why these causes are important and what exactly that means, right? Yeah, I mean, a lot of this has to do with the fact that this is not settled law because these people are not entitled to traditional due process and Bill of Rights protections. For the criminally accused, um, the standard is pretty set, right? Our rights are are robust. But given that the action is between the government and the individual, none of, I mean, the, sorry, none, the government and the property, none of those rights apply. So this is a big push for traditional procedural due process protections that are given for individuals, but have to be fought for uh, tooth and nail in the case of civil forfeiture. And there is a case next term at the Supreme Court to address some of these due process protections in the context of civil forfeiture. So that will be interesting to look out for. There might be some change on this front soon. So now with this ruling at the Second Circuit and that coming up, right, what what could be the future and how does it look in terms of maybe some action? I mean, it's you can never like a judge or a Supreme Court, you can never you never know where they're really going to come down. But What's your informed thinking on the future of civil asset forfeiture in the courts? It's interesting because right now we're seeing sort of a legislative evolution of civil forfeiture at the same time as we're seeing judicial action. So before Congress right now is the FAIR Act, which aims to curtail civil forfeiture significantly at the federal level. 
So that would be a great start. And it would uh, congressionally, statutorily provide a lot of protections for victims of civil asset forfeiture, particularly innocent third parties like Starling. Um, at the same time, we see circuit courts and eventually the Supreme Court uh, weighing in on these due process issues as well. So it will be an interesting collision, I think. I would hope that the FAIR Act will pass and it will you know, statutorily provide some of these before the court steps in. Uh, but one can only hope, right? Yeah, you never know. Um, and this is one of those weird, you know, horseshoe theory, right, where the, the right and left bend so far around that they end up almost touching. And this is one of those issues where you do see a lot of, like, cross-political agreement where, like, a weird Matt Gates row Khanna association will take place. Um, so maybe there, maybe Congress could actually do something of value. Is, yeah, it, it's an interesting... Uh, Example, because you would think that the impetus for change would be there, given how, you know, widely across the political spectrum opposition to this practice is. But at the same time, the people that directly are victims, the people this impacts day to day, have very little political power and they have very little resources to engage with the democratic process in the way that others might. So, you know, despite outward opposition from everyone from AOC to traditional conservatives and some libertarians, we really haven't seen much change despite this practice being supposedly abhorrent to many politicians uh, for a very long time now. All right, Jill Jacobson, shameless self-promotion time. Where we can, can we follow your work to find out more? I'm Jill C. Jacobson on Twitter, and I post my articles routinely on there. All right. You, you are a, you're, you're going to be a great lawyer because you're very concise, quick. You don't waste words. It's, <laughs> you, you get some of these pundits on that write for a living, and they just talk and talk. But you, you, you get right to the, to the facts. I like it. Thanks. I appreciate that. All right. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Chris Spangle Show. Make sure you check out her article here in the show notes and follow her on Twitter. And as always, if you would like a creator, the best thing you can do is to share with your friends, spread the word of mouth for Jill's work, my work, and anyone else that you appreciate. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Chris Spangle Show. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.